Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about Germany. I'm Nick Houghton of 40%German.com, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dilly Algemer to discuss the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. Hey, Dilly, how are you doing? Hi, Nick. I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? Sweaty. Real goddamn sweaty. Oh, uh, yeah. But that's to be expected in this glorious heat wave that we seem to be experiencing. I think it hasn't rained for a month. No, I'm right, really? where I am at least. Rained a bit this morning. I got really excited. I was like, yeah. yes, finally. And then it was just like, it was just God taking the piss out of me, basically. So I'm assuming it's the same kind of experience you're having over in, uh, over in the East. Or maybe it's cooler. I don't know. Um, we haven't had much rain. I like the fact that I work in a school and I can leave home very early in the morning before the sun is up. And I don't have to work until like three or four. So that's nice. I miss the heat of the day, mm -hmm. which is what I want to do. Because, and may I say this very pointedly at you, Nick, I can't tolerate the heat. I'm not good at that. Yeah, listen, I made the terrible error of <laughs> assuming that, as, as producer Simon pointed out, we've already just discussed this particular topic, but uh, I'd totally forgotten because the heat doesn't do too well on my uh, on my brain. But I, I'd made the, the terrible assumption that Dilly, coming from a place like Sri Lanka, would have some kind of superior ability to deal with hot weather and it turns out actually it's more it's more cheering for me that you are as bad as i am potentially with dealing with hot weather so yay <laughs> <laughs> i am I, I mean in sri lanka the sun sets at some point in germany in summer it doesn't mm. i mean depending on what kind of apartment you live in. I mean, you have the sun beating down mm. on you from one direction or mm. the other for like what? From 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Yeah, I, so I use on a Tuesday morning, the day, the day we record, I always have to get up at six. And it's, it's, I think dawn must be roughly about like half past five because I get woken up at six bang on by, by the, the daylight, mm. which I find is a much nicer way to wake up than having yeah. my alarm go off. Yeah, true. I feel like it's kind of, it functions, um, I feel like I function a little bit better. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I'm walking to work. It's still quite cool. It was quite nice this morning. But um, I, I feel like I'm, I'm better. I don't complain as much about it. And and like I, I like, I want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy mm. hot weather. I want to be one of them people who can totally deal with it. So what? instead of just complaining, I just shut up and sweat. My, I physically can't deal with it, but mentally no. I feel like I'm dealing with it a lot better than I used to. Neither can I. I can't even stand the sun. I, mean, I have a skin uh, problem and I have a sun mm -hmm. allergy, so I can't even stay in mm. the sun. I carry an umbrella. And something really mm. sweet happened today. So I was walking down the street and there was a mom with a little daughter behind me. I opened up the umbrella because it was sunny at some point. And usually people either laugh at me or they talk about me behind my back. And uh, the little girl uh, told her mom, oh, she had a regenschirm. So she's, uh, she has an umbrella for the rain. And, and, and it was a question. And the mother said, So she's using mm -hmm. a umbrella for the rain for the sun, as if that's a completely mm -hmm. normal thing to do. I, I I didn't want to like run back and uh, say thank you very much because I thought that would be a bit weird. But I did feel that. I did feel the sentiment. I do feel like it's profi skill. Like it's it, you see a lot of the 
exchange students who come from sort of uh, Japan and, and China there mm-hmm. in the university, and they all use umbrellas. And mm-hmm. I'm like, makes a lot of sense, really. Because I think it's the, the sort of sun and the humidity, obviously they have a lot of experience of that in those countries. And I think it's something you're going to see people do more and more as it gets hotter and hotter. And it, yeah. it does feel like every summer is hotter than the, the last um, yep. at the moment. And and it's like, yeah, well, climate change, you know, yep. the ramifications. But there's there's also some little uh, other little changes that you kind of notice. And it's something that, that uh, producer Simon mentioned, but I, I, I'd sort of noticed this as well a lot, is with the sun, mm. it feels like there's a lot more people smoking outside. <laughs> um, a lot more people outside of work, bus stops, uh, tram stops, uh, smoking. And um, as a former reformed smoker, I'm curious, do you find the same thing, Dilly? Do you find that Germans smoke a lot more either in the summer or just in general? In general, Nick, I spend most of my commute to work giving people bad looks and from work also giving people bad looks. I mean, the train station platform is just a stage for all the smoking. I mean, just today, there was a pregnant woman seated on a bench and on the on the bench opposite that was another woman who was smoking. I mean, I can't. Why would you do that? I mean, if that was me, I'd be really upset. Yeah, I can understand that. I, I do think smokers need to be a bit more aware of, of their surroundings. But I do tend to have sympathy for, as a reformed smoker, I do tend to have a lot of sympathy for smokers. Um, as a vapor, I have to go outside in all weathers uh, in the winter. Yeah. And so you kind of feel a certain level of ownership of the outside world. <laughs> so when it becomes sunny and everyone else starts enjoying the sun, you don't feel like necessarily changing your behavior. I would say that if I see a pregnant woman next to me, then I'm probably not going to start vaping. I'll walk away to somewhere else. Exactly. I mean, I have a particular spot on the train platform and there was this man who would smoke until the train comes and then he changed his spot Mm. to like upstream of me, which meant that I caught Mm. all the smoke. And this meant I had to walk all over the platform to find a neutral spot again where like there aren't any resident smokers. Do you Mm. know how, how much thought goes into my positioning on a train platform? Clearly more than, than than my sort of thinking comes into where I stand on a platform. Are your stations and platforms not rauk and fry or do, like they're not sort of smoke free? Oh, they are. Zones? They are. I mean, you also hear a notice like, you know, you can only smoke in the sm- designated areas, that sort of thing. But there is one extremely damned man who smokes inside the train station just when you enter, mm. you know, through the doors, the swinging doors kind right. of thing. He sits there yeah. smoking and the whole lobby is full of smoke and it has no ventilation. There are no windows. And I've tried talking to him. I've tried talking to the people working at the train station and hand out the tickets. The place belongs to the Deutsche Bahn and I have to speak to the Deutsche mm. Bahn. And I have done this via email and telephone call. I even like go up to the man and say, can you not smoke? There are women here. There are children. I mean, women who are pregnant here. There are children he he nods and he goes on smoking yeah that seems about right that seems about the level you're going to expect from someone like that um it, it really annoys me i mean this is something that a person does that has repercussions on other people i agree with you 
I agree with you about the sort of point about where you smoke, and I agree with you. Like uh, train stations are, I think a butt coming here. Sm- so, well, I mean, there is a big butt because the thing that, like, I get into arguments with my wife about this because we'll go to beer gardens and she'll get all huffy about people smoking in yes, beer gardens, and yes. I'm just like, I'm like, nah, nah, I'm not having any of it's that a shit. Beer I garden. just think it's totally ridiculous. Yeah, it's a beer garden, and 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 I think it's totally legit that you could, should be able to smoke there. I just think it's know? one of all the spaces in the world where you should be allowed to smoke, and I think a beer garden's one of them. It's not like you're in the fucking health club, is it? Like, if I just think I think you just have to accept that some people are going to smoke in the beer garden. There should be a smoking area for in the beer garden or at the entrance to the beer garden where the smokers can go smoke and come back in. But then they just complain about if the wind changed. Because the smoke was now in yours. Like, there's no way of fixing it. You're not going to build a shelter for them. And it's just like, sometimes you just need to accept there are places where people are going to be allowed to smoke. I have never accepted smoking. I think your wife and I are going to get along very well together. There, I, know, I, mean, I think she definitely agree with you. I, I Thank you very much. I mean, I, I wash my hair every day and I walk through like the smoke of two people smoking and my head, like my hair smells of smoke. And my clothes smell of smoke. I hate that. But if you go to a beer garden, your clothes are going to smell like beer, you know, or like you might like. I don't Is this tongue really... in cheek? What do you do with the beer that you come away smelling of it? I, I do enjoy seeing you get angry. I'm just trying to egg you on in the hope that you will uh, you'll swear a bit more like you did last <laughs> week. But honestly, I feel like there's like play parks. Don't smoke in play parks. I don't vape in play parks. I find it offensive when people spark up in a spielplatz. I think that's really inconsiderate, especially places where there are kids, right? I have strong feelings about allowing kids in in places where like pubs. I fucking hate that. I hate it's one of the things that my biggest bugbears is kids in pubs. I find that just so like I fucking hate it. If it's a pub, fuck off with your children. Like I wouldn't take my kids into a mm-hmm. pub. I don't think anyone else should. So I think there's certain places where, like, no, this isn't a family space. And beer gardens are just a space where we all have to just get along. And some people will smoke. Some people bring the kids. But I'm not going to have some sort of huffy exchange with somebody about about smoking. Because it's like, well, what did you expect? We're drinking beer and eating schnitzel and smoking. Boo-hoo. Like... Not the end of the world. <laughs> it is the end of the world. I mean, <laughs> it's not. At if, all. if if someone has got huffy, as you say, about someone smoke, it's because it's fucking in their face. Uh, says you, oh God, look at you vaping. <laughs> it's like smoke, like a chimney. It's because you're stressing me out, Dilly. You're stressing me out. Um, I mean, I, I think it's. It's just a fact of life. You just need to, you're never going to ban it. So just move on. You've, there's a lot of spaces that, that are smoke free now and more's the, more's the better. And I think Germany could be better at dealing with kind of smoking as, in a, as a general rule. And this is, comes from a discussion that producer Simon had with us on the, the podcast WhatsApp group. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how one of the things that he noticed that sort of shocked him a little bit when he came to Germany for the first time was all the cigarette machines you see everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I remember that was one of the reasons I loved living in Germany was the fact that there were cigarette machines everywhere. And I was just like, oh, this is great. 
dead easy to get cigarettes. Not a problem. There's one at the end of the street. I'd run out. I wouldn't have to go to a shop. I'd just walk two meters down the street and then bang my money in, put my card in. And and lo and behold, there were cigarettes. And even the fact that my parents-in-law's house had a cigarette machine attached to their fence. So I just had to walk to the end of their garden and buy cigarettes there. It was a very appealing element of living in Germany that smoking wasn't so much prohibited. But that obviously changed. But there were still like weird little kinks, like the fact that Germany was the last EU country to ban billboard and cinema advertising of tobacco products. Mm-hmm. That speaks to something about Germany and its desire to just keep on smoking. What made you give it up? Uh, my wife hated me smoking. And <laughs> I liked the idea of... Well, I mean, you, I mean that isn't it. Every husband is a project, so... Uh, Simon, you've got I mean, to like put words in that man's mouth when you're producing this. Uh, he can't. He's not. We've intentionally not mic'd him up, so uh, we could just assume that producer Simon agrees with me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every man is a bloody project. Yeah, like we've got nothing better to do with our lives. I like. I think there's a there's a truth in that. Like, uh, like I, I don't want to. Do. I don't want to fall down a. I don't want to fall down a rabbit hole. But I do feel like. There's an expectation that men will change certain behaviors in order to, what's the best word here, in order to... Appeal to huffy women? No, not necessarily. Sometimes, like I stopped smoking because it was a fair argument. I stunk. And, I, and as soon as I stopped, Thank you. I, appreciated, Thank you. I appreciated the fact that I had stopped. So obvious things like being able to walk up flights of stairs without getting out of breath, um, that was good. The fact that... Like it smells. That for me was the the, the the sort of key. It's such a turn off. Yeah. Like I'll I'll say this: when I walk past people smoking and I smell smoking, I'm like, oh, it smells great. Really? Like, and if I have four or five, yeah, I love. I still love it. Honestly, if it's if if there was a way of smoking cigarettes without without having to get one of them dumb sort of half cigarette half vape devices, as a way of smoking cigarettes without it being causing any f- sort of harm, and it didn't smell uh, or make my clothes smell, I'd still be fucking smoking i loved it i love that process i love the ritual of it the cigarette after a, with a cup of coffee a cigarette after dinner amazing the, one of the most amazing things is a cigarette after a big meal and like occasionally and it's very occasionally maybe once or twice a year i'll be out with mates and we'll go for dinner and i'll steal a cigarette off somebody and i instantly regret it i light it up i, sm- I have the first inhalation and then I, like the nicotine buzz is so intense because mm-hmm. i'm like if if i have any nicotine al- at all it's very low level in my vape mm-hmm. it's more about the process of vaping that and, and that sort of the the sort of mm-hmm. mas- it's not mastication is the chewing but mm-hmm. you know that element of kind of hand-to-mouth action right and uh I, 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 yeah I, I love the smell of it i think it's I, I, it does twinge something in uh, deep inside me that's like oh it's great that is but like the smell of stale smoke on a person is disgusting horrible it is i had flatmates who were smokers and mm. they'd hang their winter jacket on top of mine and then i smell like a i mean then they make coats just smells rancid i can't stand it mm. yeah and i also have a very sensitive nose which meant that my partner st- also stopped mm. vaping at some point. He was not a project, though. He also stopped it for himself. I mean, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, and maybe uh, I don't want to speak for your partner. Your partner seems like an infinitely sensible man. But I think maybe it's just a British male thing, maybe it's a northern male thing. I don't know, right? But there's a lot of men out there who are kind of 
infantile in a lot of ways in their behaviors. And it can be certain things that they just need to grow up a little bit. And it could be so really basic stuff. It could be like how much they sort of look after their own environments or look after their own hygiene or look after mm. their own health. And sometimes they need a bit of a kick up the arse. And I think that is true for a lot of blokes. And and we can spend all day discussing why that might be or how that manifests or, or all these other aspects. I think it's not a bad thing. I don't think changing to sort of bring yourself in alignment with a partner is necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, definitely. But I do think men tend to be the focus of that change a lot more than women tend to be the focus of that change. Do you really think so? I do think so, yeah. I mean, there are ways in which I've changed in the relationship. Everyone changes. I mean, particularly when you're so closely intimate with someone and obviously you accommodate, you change, you take things on, you learn things like new interests. People change a lot. And I don't know why it's just why the men should be the projects. I just think that's like that's only one perspective. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe I've totally misread that, but I don't really think I am. <laughs> I was going to say uh, good backpedaling, but then you just pedaled right back in. Uh, no, I just, I, I mean, you see it a lot. I'm not, I'm not some kind of fucking men's rights activist or anything, but I don't, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn to say that. I think there's a lot of men who've changed maybe their fashion choices or maybe have changed what they eat or oh, good, yeah. have become healthier or exercise more or, I mean, I'm having kids is one thing like, like you, that changes you, you know? And, and, and I think a lot of the responsibility of childcare falls upon women more than men and men have to adapt. And it's not because they're being forced to change, but there's a lot of ways and means where men can avoid being a parent, you know, or, or taking mm -hmm. that, that level of responsibility. And that requires you to change your behaviors internally. I think a lot of struggles men have when they have kids is the realization you can't get away with the shit you used to get away with. Mm -hmm. like you can't just idly fuck off to the pub or you can't just like sneak off and just go and play some video games or you can't just like your time isn't necessarily your own anymore and that requires some kind of change as well mm -hmm. and it takes an active decision for men in a way that perhaps it doesn't for women okay but I, like i said is that a bad thing i think i'm a better person for having met my wife so more power to me absolutely i i don't think the perspective on that is wrong per se. Mm. I mean, it's not like women, that women start families or have babies uh, somehow geared towards that. Mm. I mean, people bring different skills, different abilities, and we discover new things about ourselves as life goes on. And I wouldn't necessarily say that men have a hard time adapting to being parents compared to women. Like I can only speak from my experience and the experience of people that I've spoken to, but I had a conversation with my brother-in-law over the weekend. And the conversation I had with them was like, because it's rare that I get to have kind of frank conversations with other, mm -hmm. with other dads, because a lot of it's just like a nodded hello at a play park. But mm -hmm. I, I, what I said was like, do you find that you interact with your, your child differently from how, how your wife interacts with the child? Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, do you find it really boring when you have to like, 
play with toys and stuff or read mm. books. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, the, the most fun I'll have is when we're doing something physical or we're Ooh. throwing them in the air or we're running around or we're in the play park. That's yeah. where it's great. But when you have to sit and like kind of, when they're at that sort of age, kind of two, three, four, where you, they're not quite playing with you, but they mm. want you there while they play. Mm. That is some of the, it frankly is some of those boring parenting you're ever going to experience. Mm. And I don't know how to make that exciting and interesting. And I think that's different. Whereas there's a patience that my wife has and his wife has that, that where they can engage on a level that's very different. And, mm. I, and I think that's fine too. It's not, mm. we shouldn't have to sort of feel bad about that, mm. but I think mm. there's a truism in that too. So I recognize there's differences in the, in that kind of engagement. Do you think it's also because your wife uh, is a teacher in a school? <laughs> you're leading me down a dark path here. <laughs> um, I mean, are you saying it's harder to have a relationship with a teacher? With her? Well, all I can say is we've both recognized in our relationship that being the focal point and the disciplinarian in a, in a room full of children mm -hmm. doesn't lead to the best communication all of the time. And that's all I will say on that kind of front. I can understand that. I can definitely understand that. Or even more so being the font of all knowledge and being the focal point of like, I answer all the questions and, and, and what I have to say as an, as an authority is very mm. important, can have dramatically different reactions when you're yeah. at home. And you assume your opinion is also the same as a fact. Yeah, that is very true. Yeah. And also from a pedagogical point of view, that's also not a very wise thing to tell kids that are not your own, that you're the fountain of all information that, and that what you say goes, that's pretty authoritarian and not very successful in a classroom of teenagers. It's not overt, but there's also a kind of expectation as the authority figure that you will have all the answers. Really? I mean, I'm not saying that that's a good pre. I think there's an expectation of the kids that you will know more than they do. Ah, uh, okay. To a certain yeah. extent on certain topics. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I mean, speaking completely for myself, I had, I mean, when I, I had to spell possessive pronouns on the board recently, and I wasn't sure whether I have like whether there should be three S's or four, and I quickly checked it up on my handphone before I wrote it down on mm -hmm. the board. I mean, better to check it out than like write some nonsense on the board and then get, and like teach people something wrong. Well, I, d I mean, I don't want to pretend that I know stuff that I don't, but mm. I, I also, there's a lot of acceptance that you know the answers and there's an expectation that you will be able to answer those questions. True. And if you True. don't know something, it, it you kind of, there's a sense that if I admit I don't know this, they're going to eat me alive. So. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, I mean... I think it could be a f that feeling, I think, for some people. Not for me, particularly. I don't mind saying I have no idea, but I can find out. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that either. I'm perfectly happy mm. saying I have to look that up before I give you a more informed answer. Well, that's it, is you don't want to look stupid or for someone to instantly Google something and then you realize that like you were wrong, or, especially when it comes to something like grammar and apostrophes or... <laughs> spelling there's plenty of times where i've write something down and i'm like is that how you spell it exactly. you forget you forget how to spell something and you write it on a board and you're like yeah i'm looking at something going uh is that how is that how it's spelled autocorrect has completely ruined my spelling sense i was writing something the other day and i was like 
that's not wrong. And there was like a red line under my, under the word I was mm-hmm. writing. I said, like, that's the correct spelling. I was like, why? And I looked at the spell check and I was like, it's, it's on Swedish. It's <laughs> like, that's why it's coming up as wrong. And I clicked it on English and it was correct. And I was like, phew. Like, I, 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 and like everyone sort of laughed because it was quite a funny moment. But like, yeah, there is that for sure. You don't want to look daft in front of a group full of kids. No, no, you don't. Do Germans complain too much? It's certainly a perception that many have. The annoyed German loudly voicing their displeasure. I certainly see Germans complain more forcefully than they do in the UK, but is that really such a bad thing? What do you think, Dilly? Complaining Germans? Is it something you see a lot of? Um, I only have the perspective of being one of the complaining Germans, according to my parents. <laughs> yeah, I noticed from the last conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's from the last conversation. What was I complaining? Oh, I was complaining about the smoking. Yeah, smoking. <laughs> ah, but that's the thing. What What do you think is a complaint? I mean, complaint is very negatively connotated and you imply that it's like frivolous. It's a frivolous concern. Isn't that it? I find that Germans are more, it's not so much that what they complain about, but that they do it more directly and more loudly than they would in Britain. Nick. I asked you how you would define complaining because I've been thinking about it and you kind of really dodged the question. It's because I've been watching a lot of Tory politicians on the, the TV the last week. I've become infected by their inability to answer a direct question. Good save. I think complaint ranges from what you might consider a valid complaint, like you saying stop smoking in a place where you shouldn't be yeah. smoking, to the... And you call that frivolous. Uh, no, you call that huffy. No, I'd say, I mean, I think that's legit. I think that's a legit thing to say. I think it's reasonable. I think it's actually really healthy that you can go and say, like, look, there's a, there's a rule here, you know, like, can you just follow it? And that's a change and a shift from in Britain where we would see that as kind of, are you a bit of a job's worth or like what you're sticking your nose in other people's business mm-hmm. and kind of the idea of like, it would be somehow impolite to confront somebody with their wrongdoing. Mm. And I think that's a German kind of, skill set that i really admire uh, that you'll call people out for their bad behavior but at the same time i think that there's people enforcing rules that we all know are rules mm-hmm. like don't smoke in the train station or whatever mm-hmm. and then there's people who will enforce like imaginary rules that they've decided are things that they don't like and therefore have become a rule and they f- will complain with equal force about the thing that annoys them mm that isn't a rule as they would with something that is a rule. So voicing and annoyance. Okay. Yeah. So I would Hmm. say like the process is interesting, but the application isn't always as uniform. Okay. I can live with that much more than your arguments for smoking. But you seem to have got right into the swing of things of being able to kind of approach somebody and say, this is the rule. Why not following this rule? then perhaps I I would. I'd still have that hang up about, oh, you know, is it really for me to say something? Mm. That's the kind of discerning thinking I think my parents would like me to have. I think I've said this before. So uh, when I'm in Sri Lanka and, you know, just after the plane ride, it was like 2 a.m. and my parents' neighbor was playing very loud music. So I got out of bed, went over and said, can you please turn the radio down? The neighbor mm. was also my 
father's cousin. So, yeah, which meant that there were many politeness norms to be followed. And the, that's when my father started calling me Angela Merkel. Mm. And to me, that was not a complaint. I mean, there was a need and there was something to be done. And I mean, we could have all complained about it the next day among ourselves. But then we would have been sleep deprived. That didn't make sense to me. Yeah, and I think it's better to complain in the in the moment when it's happening than to sort of wait until... Because sometimes I think people deserve to hear the fucking wrath, you mm -hmm. know? Like when people are behaving poorly in public spaces, mm. I think it's totally reasonable to call them out on that exactly. behavior. Exactly, yeah. But I think there's ways and means of, of doing that. And and there is this stereotype of sort of Germans will just complain about everything. And I think it's it happens a lot in the sense that um, because especially for British people, we don't complain. Mm. You, you sort of see it more and it's more, almost more shocking. But then it's like waiting in a supermarket and you hear that, that the call of the angry German, which is, hello, hello. And they're, they're not saying, excuse me, could you open a new checkout? They're just shouting, hello. And they're like trying to get the attention of a <laughs> checkout member of staff. And they're not really expressing what it is that is the problem. They're just, I find that, I find I'd want to call that out and just be like, the fuck is your problem? You know, like speaking full sentences. I, d I just find that passive-aggressive kind of approach uh, a crock of shit. Ah, so it's not geared to bring forth a solution. You're just getting the annoyance off your chest. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. And that's the thing that I admire about Germans is British people moan and Germans complain. Ah. British people moan with no, with very little expectation that things will be resolved mm -hmm. we have like an acceptance that things are just a little bit shit yeah. and that is the reality whereas when germans complain there's a kind of feeling that there's a solution to be found and i kind of see that in a positive and we've talked about this before this sense of like and i get i get shit on all the time for this because anytime i express any opinion about germany people see it as a complaint when actually you're just mourning i've not I'm not necessarily even moaning. I'm just observing. I'm like, that's a thing. Have you seen that thing over there? Mm -hmm. And then, and then German people will explain it to me, or they'll explain like what's happening mm -hmm. or an interaction. And I'm like, well, I don't actually need it to be explained. Mm -hmm. You've not solved this, this this by explaining it. I understood the interaction, but I'm just observing it. It's not interesting. This difference. Mm -hmm. And it's because they only have 50% of the conversational sort of awareness or 50% of the cultural awareness that perhaps I do in that instance, mm. where the reason it's interesting to me is because the other half of my brain's British, you know? Fair enough. I've had a lot of things in life that I thought was not ideal and I did voice it. But sometimes like it gets mm. too much for people. Like even as a kid, I had problems with the choir leader at the, <laughs> the church choir. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And <laughs> or the school van and the rules, mm. the school and the rules. Yeah, God, yeah. In those instances, I, I was sort of brought up to, like, don't complain was almost a rule, you know? Like, I oh, don't moan about it, don't complain about it. But then British people are moan all the time about the things that they, that, that, that they don't like. And it'll be kind of a, 
cathartic process. Mm-hmm. And I read something in the uh, R&D website, Redaktionsnetzwerk Deutschland, mm. and it was from this mindfulness coach called Helmut Novak. Mm-hmm. And he said that constant negativity turns people off. And I was like, oh, it's interesting you say that because, again, is that perception of from maybe migrant communities, English-speaking migrant communities, that there's that Germans are quite negative. And he's pointing out that that, neg- that negativity turns people off. And it suggests that Germans don't want to hear people moan about things all the time. But Novak sort of went on to point out that if someone, and this is a direct quote from the piece, mm. and we'll put it in the show notes for you to have a look at yourself, dear listener. If someone mostly just complains instead of seeking constructive solutions, this easily leads to decreased self-efficacy with a, a decrease in self-confidence. Instead, you should ask yourself questions like, can what I complain about be changed? What could I do and who could help me? So very practical Mm. advice. But I was like, well, sometimes I just moan with no intention of it ever being fixed because I just want to get it off my chest. Mm. I just want to put it out into the world and just say, this is shit or I hate this. I don't expect someone to explain it. I don't expect someone to give me a solution. I just want to say, just get it out of my head, you know? Quite, yeah. We call that ranting. We call that ranting or venting. And neither is bad. Sometimes you just need to mm. get something out of the system. You don't want a solution. You're not seeking a solution by talking to them. You just need like a sounding no. board sometimes. You just need to like put your thoughts in order. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. Is that what you think is not the German thing? I think there is... Often when I moan, my expectation, I think sometimes I just forget where I am and sometimes I moan and someone will just go, oh, well, this is why that is. And it's like annoying almost that someone would like say that. What you want to hear is, oh yeah, that is shit. I totally understand what you mean. You don't want, well, firstly, you must consider what you should be doing to change this situation. Oh, that I do not like that perspective. That's a very school teaching in grade five. Like when people say, stop complaining, think about what you can do to make it better. I mm-hmm. mean, that's several steps beyond the complaint. You've got to start somewhere. Mm. And, pe- and people should be able to get things off their chest. I was reading a, a, over the weekend, I was reading in the, um, the Observer, mm. there was an interview with the actor Mark Rylance. And Mark Rylance is, is a great actor, really good Oscar winner. He won the a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Bridge of Spies. Uh-huh. And there's a line that he has in Bridge of Spies that I think I, I really like it as a concept. And it's he's like being accused of being a, a double agent or something. Mm-hmm. And him and Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is employed to try and sort of, mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly the story, Tom Hanks is employed, I think he's a lawyer or something to try and get him off. Mm-hmm. And um, Tom Hanks gets really frustrated with him and goes like, well, why aren't you more angry about this? Why are you not more upset? Mm-hmm. And Mark Rylance looks at him and goes, would that help? And I, and I I think as a concept, it's really, I was like, oh, I wish it could be like that. I wish I could be like, would that really help me getting upset about things? Like I had an interaction on Twitter. My wife just sort of will do this to me all the time. Someone will comment on something I've written or something I've said, mm-hmm. and I'll get really frustrated about it. And she'll be like, well, like, does it really matter? And I'm like, it fucking matters right now, you know? It matters in this moment, but she's right. It doesn't actually matter particularly. But like, I'm just, all I want to do is go like, fuck, this is really annoying. Or this person said something I disagree with. Like, oh, isn't it annoying? Mm. And she'd be like, 
oh, it doesn't matter. So it is kind of like that where you're, you're looking for a sounding board. Mm-hmm. You're looking for some validation for feeling the way you are. A little bit, a little bit, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's not good to validate the things that I'm saying. Sometimes it's good to have that, like... Yeah, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Linguistics professor Ingrid Piller was interviewed by Süddeutsche Zeitung over the weekend, and some of what she had to say about bilingual couples certainly rang true with me. Uh, For instance, when asked what she found most surprising about her 30 years of research on bilingual partnerships and multilingualism, she said, the best realization is that a bilingual couple, if they stay together for a long time, create their own language. And I definitely thought about this. Um, (laughs) Have you created your own language with, with your partner, Dilly? We have. Would you like to hear an example, Nick? Go on, give me an example. So our first Christmas together, it was snowing and my, and my boyfriend said, look, there's many snow. And that's Chuck. And we always say many snow. <laughs> many snow. <laughs> it breaks my heart every time I think about it. But yeah, you sort of adopt the incorrect terminology. Like my wife always used to talk about people being egoistic, mm-hmm. not egotistical. <laughs> so egoistic. every time I go like, ah, you're so egoistic. Is egoistic not a word? I think it, I think it is, but it's not a word that's in common use. Ooh, do we have a prescriptive person among us? Um, no, not at all. I kind of enjoyed it, but I was like, most people wouldn't say that. Yeah, okay. You know, most yeah. people wouldn't do that. But I think much and many is one of those ones that would definitely, mm. definitely do that. Yeah, we'll have like half German, half English mm-hmm. kind of conversations mm-hmm. where we sort of dip in and out, and my wife will dip into German, and I'll start like I'll start in English and then switch to German, and then she'll switch to, switch to English, mm-hmm. and so we do have these kind of patois almost that isn't quite one or the other mm-hmm. it's just a mixture of the two yeah or i'll i'll use german words instead of english words mm-hmm. when i'm talking about susakite is one that comes up a lot you have uh, kids. i want to teach yeah. my daughter yeah. the right yeah but like we'll talk about i'll say like, oh, do you want some susakite to my daughter or not do you want some sweeties yeah and so you do end up kind of adopting like bits and bobs from the, each other's languages mm-hmm. which i think creates kind of a closeness I think it's quite a, quite a nice thing to do. Yeah. Like it's our own little kind of communication style. Yeah. Doesn't do great wonders for my German. <laughs> but that is true. You sort of learn mistakes. So the one I had today is, you know how you have like mitgas, like Vasa mitgas, yeah. right? And we use the, the, I'm not sure whether it's colloquial or Bayerish mm-hmm. or Schwabish, but they'll say Sprudelwasser mm-hmm. and I can't say Sprudel properly. <laughs> Just and so do. everyone, like my wife, you know, but like it's not, my pronunciation's not right at Sprudel all. On it. And my wife yeah. will always try and say, she'll always try and say it like I say mm-hmm. it. It's kind of like a mocking way of saying <laughs> it. And But it kind of like, it's like ribbing rather than kind of full on mockery, but it's still quite funny. Yeah. But what I found interesting as well is that Pillar, the um, linguistics professor, had also pointed out that language can be a factor in, in multilingual couples coming together. Yeah. And it can be part of the actual attraction between couples. And she said, and this is a quote from the article, you are attracted to someone who comes from a different culture or language, an accent that sounds so romantic. Um, I was surprised that partners, especially at the beginning of their relationships, often feel like representatives of their nations, but that decreases over time. Mm -hmm. And again, that's something that I thought about. I feel like I'm representing the British aspect in our relationship. 
and we come into conflict because of that. Do you feel something similar? Yeah, yeah. There's a huge part of me that's Sri Lankan in our relationship. My Both my boyfriend and I are migrants. So we are mm-hmm. immigrants to Germany. And mm-hmm. where we are from, uh, our heritage is a huge part of us. And that's also something that attracted me to him at the beginning. Because um, mm. his father was Hungarian, his mother is Bulgarian, and he, and they had him when they moved to the Netherlands. So he's Dutch. And he's just mm. absolutely proud of every little piece of himself. And mm. what he remembers from traveling in these countries, and his childhood, and his grandparents, and, you know, the food that we try to make again. And he makes me the food that his mm. grandma used to make for him, like tarator. That's like a yogurt soup. Uh, it's a cold soup with mm-hmm. yogurt and cucumber and stuff and mint. Mm-hmm. And um, is it mint or dill? I think it's mint. And uh, these experiences haven't ended. So what he makes for me, he also made for my parents when he went to Sri Lanka. And so he takes a little mm-hmm. bit of Bulgaria and the Netherlands and Hungary with him there. And then they take it on and then they keep making the same food. And to me, there's like a huge chain of events that still hasn't come to an end. And like multicultural, Mm. multilingual relationships are, I I mean, I haven't been in any any other relationships, so I wouldn't know what it's like. And and it's not to say that anything else can be uh, worse or better. Um, I do enjoy being in the relationship that I'm in. I feel like it's a, it's like a duty to uphold certain, not British values at all, really, but Geordie values. Ooh. Sense of humor is a big one. Oh, yeah. And sarcasm. Sri Lankan sarcasm. Just casual casual humor is such yes. a factor in British communication, but in Geordie communication, it's like everyone's really funny. Yeah. Like all the people I grew up with, all my family members, quick to make a joke, quick to yeah. take the piss, quick to kind of like... To say something that's like just bowls you over with the the the, the quick wittedness of it, yeah. And I feel like I've never been the fastest wit in my family, but I do. I feel like I am the fastest wit in this family. You know, like with my brothers, are always more yeah. funny and faster and, yeah. and 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 cleverer and more like pointed than I am. But everyday humor, everyday like piss taking, is something that is developed as part of our relationship. And when my wife does it, it's always epic. It's always better than what I could do. She doesn't do it as often as I do, but I make like stupid jokes or I'll like sort of make fun of stupid things. Mm -hmm. And like making her laugh is one of the best things that can happen. Mm -hmm. And like we were driving the other day and she was like, there's loads of, uh, there's loads of hawks and like eagles flying around. And I was like, yeah, there is a Mm -hmm. lot. I've noticed that. And she's like, you know, they started attacking people. And I was like, well, I guess like the CSU will be advocating we shoot them as well. And she like sort of, she like snorted coffee out of her nose and I was just like, yes, win, you know, like what a bonus. And I felt like that's my, like it's those sorts of things where you're constantly trying to find the moment where you can just sort of make the other, yeah. other laugh. And I think that's such a big part of the culture. But other things like more yeah. mundane things like sort of food or football, football's yeah. a big one at the moment. It's like, mm. it's like she really appreciates how football can change my sort of emotional balance. And like, I think she enjoys the idea that like I'm an England fan and a kind of a constantly, mm. constantly disappointed, you know, or like, yeah. I remember like 
Euro 2020 was a good example where we had like this run into the final. Mm-hmm. And she, 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 could, she was like, I can't watch it with you. And I was like, oh, is it because I shot at the TV too much? And she's like, no, I'll be really sad if they don't win. I'll be really Aww. sad for you. And I was like, actually, don't be, you know, it's like, it's a real big part of, of me is, and my personality and part of my sort of culture. But yeah. it's also like, if you take it all, don't you? It's all or nothing. You've got to sort of, yes, we might not win, but there's also like value in, in the clutching defeat from the jaws of victory as it were and i think that's a big part of of who i am and and, and what makes me me yeah and and so i want i want to share that too but i feel like i have to represent that and almost fall into a stereotype as it were of the british football fan not sort of pissing in the pot plants or anything like that but you know sort of (laughs) like just setting off flares (laughs) you know just the bushes (laughs) off the balcony but I feel like I feel like there's like a terminal intensity I bring to watching football that that's that's part of of my my own culture, and I feel like well if I don't represent it, who who the hell will? No one else will, you know. Um, and uh, the, this article went on to talk about the negatives because there are negatives in all of this. No. And I don't think we want to. Of course, there uh-huh. is. Pillar had pointed out that there are a number of additional challenges to talk about. First of all, they relate to the establishment of the couple. What language do we speak? In addition, very often one of the partners in a bilingual couple has a migration background. Either both live in a third country or one partner is at home there. Of course, the local person has a certain advantage because they have contacts mm-hmm. and networks, friends and family. Um, they they know how everything works. Yeah. The immigrant partner has given up the family and homeland yeah. and has to establish themselves. Yeah find a new job or a new sort of group of uh, friends or new qualifications. Mm -hmm. And often there are bureaucratic problems with permits and and so on and so forth. And then there's the question of like, do you bring your kids up bilingually, which wasn't really an issue for us. It was always kind of obvious that we would. Mm -hmm. But again, I felt this like resonated and it's something that I've certainly been talking about online recently, this idea of this perception that those who come to Germany because of a partner somehow have it easier than those who don't. And I did, and I don't think you necessarily came to Germany under the same pretense. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's the case that it's easier if you have a partner than if you come on your own steam? Um, as in a partner who is German? Yeah, yeah. Or like a partner who's a resident in that country. I read a Twitter post recently where a woman has said that she has um, that she's an immigrant and she has... Uh, so many problems getting healthcare, accessing good healthcare in Germany. And her mm. German-speaking partner is constantly talking to people or writing to people on her behalf. And that if this is not the case, she wouldn't be where she is. And she'd said, I completely feel for you, uh, the people who are here in Germany without a German partner. And uh, I mean, in my case, my partner had lived in Germany 20 years before he'd met me and he'd grown up speaking German anyway um, in his uh, in the Netherlands and he speaks much better German than I do but at the same time we find uh, uh, he can relate to some of my experiences I can relate to some of his experiences but I would say that if you have a German partner, you, um, as uh, Pila says, you have access to family. You have you are in very you are in social networks that are already established, and uh, there is a bit of a the idea of a safety net there 
I mean, you have relatives mm-hmm. living around you or maybe you're part of a family that is there. And if not, you have family overseas. And living in Germany or in any country with your primary family overseas is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, I get the, the support network aspect. Mm-hmm. But I think it kind of misses... No, and again, I want to be really clear. I find the, the discussion about hard mode, easy mode, really almost insulting. Like, because everyone's experiences are different. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Everyone yeah, has across, across, yeah. To, across to bear, you know. And I don't think it is helpful to have that discussion of like, well, I had it harder than mm. you. And I think we can appreciate it's difficult on different in different in ways, different, for ways, different yeah. people with different experiences, yeah. right? And and one of the things that I const- I do get that a lot is like, oh, well, you know, you you had a a German girlfriend and they had her family and that was mm-hmm. that was okay. And I was like, but that also creates a different kind of problem mm. because, for instance, not knowing the language, yeah. uh, not being able to interact if the people of that family don't speak exactly English, yeah. for instance, is something that I've, I've, I've had as well. But also the sort of idea that, oh, well, your partner's friends become your friends. And I'm like, mm, no, that's, that's not that's necessarily not the case. Because I, I, for me, one of the big struggles was like, I need my own group of mm-hmm. friends. I need to be social in my own way on my own yeah. terms. And I can't be social on my own terms yeah. with my wife's yeah. friends in the way I can be with my own yeah. friends. And I have made friends with the partners of my wife's friends on my own terms. Okay. And those relationships are really strong and and I really appreciate them. But it had to be it couldn't just be as an extension of my wife's relationship. Yeah, yeah. And I think that is a struggle, but also there's things like there was a period of my life where there would be conversations happening in the family about what was going on in my life that I wasn't a party to. Oh, Nick. So, but no, I mean, like, not necessarily always in a negative yeah. way, but like then you feel like, well, why am I not? Decisions are maybe being made yeah. without. Why am I not a part of this? Without me being like, I'm. Oh yeah, exactly. And that creates a real, a real barrier yes. in a relationship. Yeah. And I think that causes a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And, and absolutely. And I think it's something we don't necessarily speak about because we feel like, well, who am I to complain? Is that complaining thing again? Who am I to complain? Everyone. Some people have it harder than I do, and therefore, if I complain about it, it seems like no, it's no. That it's definitely not a point. No, I do, and I and I kind of I kind of get that that idea, but also the fact that you can't live in a relationship where you feel that that imbalance consistently throughout, mm. or that you're constantly going, "Well, I gave up all of this. Yeah, I gave up my life to come yeah. here," and that can be painful as well in a relationship yeah. where one person feels like they're they're the one giving up, everything. making the sacrifices, or not not even if they feel that if they use it as a weapon yeah. in an argument. Yeah as a way of going, well, I gave up my life and why can't I continue doing the thing that I was doing because it makes me feel good? I've had a hard time too. Why can't I continue to smoke? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're being around the bush. No, I would never. I mean, that would have been a shitty argument to make because I want to continue smoking. I gave up everything. How dare you make me give up smoking? It's the last pleasure I had. But I do think it relates to that. It relates to that idea of like what people have to give up and what people have to change. And if you're one, if it gets to a point where you feel you've got to give up more than the other person, yeah. that can be really debilitating in a relationship. Yeah, that's not a very balanced scale. I think it's very simplistic to say that 
couples that are A have it easier than couples that are B. I mean, I, I don't think we need to relativize challenges that people face. I mean, what's a challenge to you as part of a marriage where one partner is German are as valid as the problems and things that I have in my relationship uh, with a partner who's not German. But I do feel we have that in a lot of communities where it's like, well, my struggle was more than yours. Or like, I've had it harder than than the other person. And therefore, my my experience is more valid than yours. And I feel that that does crop up occasionally in, in discussions online and, mm-hmm. and in person. Where it's like, oh, oh yeah, well, yeah, that does sound bad, but it's not as bad as what I had to go through. And I feel like it's so destructive it that is, kind of perspective it's, so damaging to a relationship to kind of continually highlight how hard it was like or uh, what i find often is if and this is why i'm so wary of complaining about things when i complain mm-hmm. often what gets tossed back at me online more than anywhere else mm-hmm. is where well, you didn't have it as hard as this minority or this group and it's all like they don't say you shouldn't complain but I do feel like that's essentially what I'm being told. Like, oh, you're you're a man and you you sort of, you come from Britain, you speak English, the world is your oyster. And so any problem you have is suddenly mitigated by those factors. And I'm like, but I still feel the, I still feel pain. I still feel sad about it. I feel, st- feel hurt by certain instances. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm being told I shouldn't feel like that or I can't, or that it's somehow less than, and I should somehow have gratitude for the fact that it's not as bad as other people's. And I don't feel like that makes me feel very good. (laughs) No, I can't imagine that. I mean, your problems are as valid, as I said before. Um, One experience in my life as uh, as an immigrant here in Germany, where I have felt like I had it worse than other people who are actually German here, was when I was doing my master's in Germany completely alone. I wasn't in a relationship with anyone at the time. And I uh, worked at the university as a student assistant. I wrote my master's thesis and I looked after myself. And I remember my colleagues or my friends at university who were living in our town, but also went back home over the weekend to their parents and uh, in the six months where you write the thesis or something, they move back to their parents completely. And then like, or I had flatmates who were German and their parents would come visit them with cake and um, arancini, (laughs) whatever it is that parents make. And I absolutely missed that because I knew that my parents would have completely supported me Mm. had they been living within easy reach. And people... Mm thought that, you know, ah, you don't have the attachment, you don't have the obligation to visit your parents. I, I mean, they thought that I had it easy and I thought they had it easy. But I, I mean, I, we talk about like uh, doing housework and how people cope uh, a lot in our family because uh, when you're in Sri Lanka, you can also have people working in your homes and cooking and doing the gardening and so on. And um, I, my mother and I, we talk about our cousins and, uh, or my cousins. 
and and I remember thinking like here I was I mean I, I it hadn't even occurred to me to complain about having to do the laundry cleaning my house cleaning my bathroom having clean enough clothes and clean socks I was cooking for myself really nice meals and I was doing my master's thesis on my own and um, that to me yeah that's it's that veneer of independence and capability that leads to people just assuming yeah, that you, I have it oh, easy. You can, de- yeah. you can deal with yeah. it. You can, you can, you look like you have it easy because you're making it look easy. But actually, ultimately, you're still feeling yeah. emotions yeah. that are that that are raw and difficult yeah. to to kind of quantify. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for saying that. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> That brings us to the end of the show. Nick's off to check in with his project manager. I do hope the annual review goes well. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Um, If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes, which only takes a minute and can really help us. You can also rate us on Spotify, so chuck some stars our way there as well. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag DecadesFromHome, all lowercase, on Twitter or Instagram. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Dilly on at DillyAlgamer, and you can tweet me at 40%German. You can also get us on DecadesFromHome at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40%German.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis some next time, Mal. Cheers. Cheers.